Victorianism is such a large subject with tendrils shooting off into so many aspects of life uh, over the 1800s that there was just no way to contain it all in one lecture, one class period. So here is part two. Um, it, this was originally recorded on October 2nd, I think, um, when I talked about imperialism, maybe October 6th. I believe it was the 6th. But as you can tell, this is the part of the school year where my classes are being recorded, but a section here goes with a section from another class. And so there's this sort of uh, cobbled together aspect uh, to these episodes right now. So, um, but this one I think goes pretty seamlessly. So let's plug in. Yeah. See, this is what, you know, the, the first time I ever uh, went out of the country, I got to go to London, England, and it was a fabulous trip. Would go back in a heartbeat. Um, but one of the things that before, because uh, I was traveling with a school group, and so we would have these little preparatory meetings. And one of the things that they would um, constantly tell us is that, you know, it, it's, it, it looks small on a map, but you get over there and there's far more history than you would, like even that you think you know from learning in school, there's way more than that. And it's also, even though the size looks deceivingly small, that whole getting from south to north, like there are no straight lines. The, the, the roads follow, a, it, with, even within London, they follow a lot of the old cattle trails. I think I've mentioned this before. And whenever the Great Fire of London happened in 1666, and, um, and most of the city, a large part of the city, was burned to the ground, they had the opportunity to start over with a clean slate and straighten the roads and lay out this nice grid. And the people basically rebelled against that. And they're like, no, we have been following these same cattle trails to market for centuries. Do not take those from us. And they basically just uh, put up a real stink about it. And so they kept the original, I mean, there were certain parts of the city that they did say, okay, over here, we're, we're doing this. But there are other parts of the city that it's like driving through a tangled knot of string. Like I would not recommend ever trying to drive through London yourself. Use the subway, call a taxi. There's very little, for someone who is not a native Londoner, there's very little sense to, um, to, to how London is laid out. But the entire island, because of just the rich history, everything just sort of kinks and wobbles and doubles back on itself in some pretty interesting ways. So I, I feel like I've introduced Victorianism from about four different angles here. We've, we've talked about the nicey-nice parts, the manners, and, and some of the frivolity. We've talked about notable names. We've talked about some of the dark underbelly of Victorianism. We've talked about the scramble for Africa, and you'll get the rest of that story in the podcast. But then there's also this sort of um, freaks and circus show kind of aspect 
to the modern world that comes out of the Victorian era that we're going to talk about today. But as our little placeholder, our starting slide here, um, you have a, this is a death mask. This was a thing that was typical in the days of photography and even after photography was invented because it was so expensive and so many people could not afford photography that a lot of times that your last chance to get a lasting image of your loved one was to make a death mask of them. And there were people that that was their job was to make these plaster molds of the faces of the deceased. It really, as far as death masks are concerned, it really happened more with the famous people of the time. So like we have a death mask, um, uh, these are all out there. There's one of Marie Antoinette, one of Benjamin Franklin, Abraham Lincoln, Ludwig von Beethoven, a lot of people who would have been the big celebrity personalities or world leaders of the time, uh, a lot of times th that's what they would, you know, they would do that. They would make a death mask and, you know, there are several reasons behind this. So uh, with this girl, because she was an anonymous person, they, they found her, she had, uh, uh, she was pulled from the Seine River and apparently a suicide. Um, but it also became a way to hopefully identify victims uh, if there was like a, a cold case or a case still under investigation. It was one way to try to figure out, well, you know, we buried her over here. Here's the death mask. Is, is this your missing daughter? Is that kind of thing. Um, never identified her, but... And, and this is one of those sort of oddball twists and turns that we get a lot in the last 200 years. We can't blame it all on the Victorian era. In 1958, this anonymous girl's features were used to model the first aid mannequin Rescue Annie, on which thousands, at this point millions of people have practiced CPR. So though her identity remains a mystery, her face, it is said, has become the quote, most kissed face of all time. So if you're like me and you've ever had CPR training, you've had to work with Rescue Annie. Of course, I think they have several dummies now. There's there's the male mannequin, there's the female mannequin, and then there's usually like a child in an infant-sized one. So when I was 13 years old, I started getting a lot of requests from people at my church to babysit their kids. And um, my mom and dad, always thinking way ahead of the game, um, said, that's fine, but before you can take your first babysitting um, job, uh, you need to go through CPR training. Uh, like, we're just going to require this, that you need to go and get CPR certified before we will let you take care of anybody else's children. And so I did, and of course the first time, it is kind of freaky because the, the mannequin, at least to me, looked very lifelike. Um, but, uh, but at least now I know why. <laughs> right um, and I did get certified and I had lots of babysitting clients highly recommend the CPR training because one thing it'll do even though I never had I, I had to give CPR to any of my babysitting charges I did have a couple of freak injuries that happened on my watch and it pays to go through enough training to where you don't lose your head when somebody under your care gets hurt so anyway We'll talk some more about death masks in a minute. Oh, yay. Can, uh, 
consistent here. Okay, so the Gothic Circus. This is the name of this particular uh, PowerPoint. And what we're talking about here is the beginning of the modern obsession of sensationalism, dark celebrity, deformity, violence, and death. And this is sort of the background noise of our time, right? Like there are whole subcultures, there are whole uh, fandoms out there that center on these really dark, nasty corners of culture, on, on certain vices or certain storylines that just, that draw readers or viewers into just really dark corners. And while there is a certain amount of darkness in the world that has to be recognized face on, there is great danger in staring too deep into the abyss. Because as the old saying goes, if you stare too deep into the abyss, the abyss will stare back into you. The idea there being that if you focus too much on the dark and the violent and the nasty aspects of life, then it becomes of how you live your life. Even if you think you're being slick and you're keeping it all inside your head, it still bleeds out into how you treat other people, how you handle your responsibilities. It handles, it, it, it affects everything. Um, the, the, the saying that, um, or actually, it's a, it's a song from the late 60s, early 70s, and it's beautifully rendered. Uh, musically, it's, a, it's an almost perfectly executed song. It's a, I am a rock, I am an island, island for an island uh, feels no pain and a rock never cries. Um, I forget who sang that song, but you get these sort of sayings uh, sprinkled throughout pop culture in the last 50, 60 years. It's a lot of baloney because no person you know, quote, doing their truth on their terms, um, you know, what they do doesn't affect other people, not true. It, it does affect the people around you in some way, for good or ill. Um, and so what we're gonna look at here today is where did that tripping point start? Like we know that the ancient Egyptians were obsessed with death because they, you know, did a lot of embalming and crazy death rituals, but you know, that that's like long ago and far away. How is it that we're in 2020 and we have, you know, the, uh, the satanic church putting billboards up um, saying that uh, abortion should be allowed because it is a sacred religious practice. That, that made the news here about two days ago. I don't know if anybody else saw that. Out west, um, I want to say Colorado. I'm not sure. I know. Uh, anyway, we we can we can look for that. But that was, they they were actually suing the state government because they had been prohibited from putting up those billboards. That's what they wanted to put up were big billboards saying that um, you know everybody needs to back off of the whole abortion cause because this is a sacred religious practice and we should be allowed to practice our religion freely by killing unborn children. Yeah. So, freaks and circuses. So, during the 1800s, we get, um, oh, I'm going to get the name wrong, uh, Barnum and Bailey, Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus, which actually finally declared bankruptcy and went away permanently only about two years ago. 
Um, and uh, Barnum and Bailey Circus um, and P.T. Barnum himself had very checkered history, meaning like a lot of other things in modernity, what was good was very, very good, and what was bad was really cringy. Um, and so what you're seeing here are a couple of photos of some of the remarkable people who populated uh, which were back in the day called the freak shows. This is, you know, you go to the circus and you pay your ticket to go in the tent and see the gigantic man, the bearded lady, the girl with four legs, the smallest people in the world, uh, the most famous conjoined twins, Chang and Aang, uh, made their big debut and became so famous because of Barnum and Bailey Circus. Uh, conjoined meaning that these were identical twins that um, when they were born they were still connected together um, and so a lot of times you will hear uh, uh, twins with this condition referred to as Siamese twins um, and that is because Chang and Aang were from the kingdom of Siam and um, uh, Barnum and Bailey went pretty far afield looking for people who um, were remarkable and different in these sorts of ways and would hire them to be part of the circus. And a lot of times uh, these people who were already isolated or ostracized or ignored or um, persecuted by their own communities saw the circus as a chance to escape that, to make money, and to take the thing that made them different and turn it into a, a you know, a paycheck, basically. Um, and of course, these circuses drew huge numbers of people. And again, if you're thinking before movies and television, and even after movies and television came along, um, you know, entertainment, you know, it basically separated, kind of like now, into one of two categories. It was either very highbrow, you're going to the opera, you're going to uh, the theater to see the latest production of Othello or Macbeth by William Shakespeare, or it was very lowbrow. You're going for the boxing matches, matches. you're going to the circus, um, you're going to... Um, you know, you're going to see the other side of life that, um, you know, it is what it is, but it's, but the, you, you have this question mark in the back of your head of like, should, should we really be making money off of this? Should I really be paying money for this? And yet, uh, people came in droves to see these things. So, a part of this um, phenomenon of freak shows and circuses, like this plays into this ongoing question of can we trust what we see? And this is also in conjunction with the, uh, the birth and growing momentum of photography. So at right, okay, yeah, I've got, I, I must have switched the photos because the, the right and left are, are mislabeled. But anyway, on your left, you see a circus elephant named Murderous Mary who was hanged in East Tennessee for killing her assistant elephant trainer, Red Elridge. And on the right, you have the sideshow performer, Johnny Eck, the half boy, with his twin brother, Robert. And of course, 
The question here is that, can we trust either of these photographs? Um, I, I don't know, hanging an elephant, I, I just, you know, part of me just wants to say, what's the point? You know, if it's, if it's a, a, a rabbit or dangerous animal, there are ways of putting down even a large animal, but we've got to make a spectacle about it. We've got to, you know, sentence the elephant to a formal execution and hang them from a crane that's bending under the weight. And of course, with a photograph like that, it's kind of hard to look at that and go, okay, is, is that, did that really happen? Or Because it, it looks like partially like a painting. It's very flat. And then the photo on the right, I have my doubts about this one. What do y'all think? Do, do you think Johnny Eck was really, as he seems there, which is basically a kid from the waist up? kind of looks like he's laying down flat on that. Yeah. <laughs> it does. It does look like a very carefully arranged optical illusion. Um, so if you've done anything with photography or art, then you know that there's something called foreshortening, which is where you're, you're trying to draw or paint the, the thing or the person so that it looks like it's coming out of the canvas, out of the paper at you but that depending on how you line things up that you can have say um, i'm thinking of a famous photograph of a ballerina she's standing with her leg outstretched like that and she's got on her pink tutu but the way that the camera's angled is all you see is the foot and the tutu you don't see the leg, you don't see the leg she's standing on, and you just get a little bit of a dark brown in the very background that suggests that that's where her hair bun is. But you basically don't see the ballerina, you only see the tutu and the foot because of the camera angle. And that's, that's something I think is going on here, but what else is probably a good indication that Johnny Eck is not what he seems? I mean, just medically, think about this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. So if you have ever known anybody who maybe was an amputee or who was very sick or who, like, he would not look that healthy if he was missing everything from here down. And then there's also the question about just like the, the, the daily necessities of life and how do you handle that and how do you give that kind of proper medical care to someone like that in the 1800s? Cameron, did I see your hand up? Yeah, I was just going to say, whoever the photographer was for that picture must have been very good at knowing what they were doing. Any higher it would give away the back of the kid, any lower it probably showed that the table really spins more backwards than it was portraying. Yeah, yep. And you make a very good point there that this is where um, photography and um, knowing your camera angles and trick photography and manipulating the photograph to show something that wasn't really that way like it starts almost immediately with the birth of photography like once we figured out the basics of how to make it work and how to get consistent results in the, the photographs we were taking, you would start getting 
tricks like this. I don't include any here, and I'll, I'll give y'all a break here in just a second. I don't include any photographs here, but there was also a very famous, I don't know if you would call it a scandal, it was a sensation. There were two girls um, that uh, said that they had um, actually encountered fairies, real living fairies. And there were photographs taken of them playing in the garden and that revealed or showed these fairies. And it seems to be very realistic, very lifelike. And the fact that it is so early in the 1800s, you think, okay, there is no way these could have been falsified because, I mean, it's old-fashioned photography. You've got the big accordion box thing here and, and the you know the cloth and the, the big thing of the powder and you've got to get it like like there's no way to manipulate it was manip manipulated neither of the sisters confessed until i think one of them had died and the other one was like literally on her deathbed and she's like yeah we figured out a way and then we we, we dressed up and we figured out how to superimpose images on a pre-existing image but in the meantime they had led uh, believers and fairies down the garden path literally and figuratively for over 60 years um so very famous uh a photography um hoax there uh real quick leo and then we'll take a break yes i know that uh that's not, not real but um there are some genetic conditions where people have like not had their legs fully developed or something and yes that is true similar and there are there are genetic conditions that can create that, um, and uh, yes, what she said. I, I don't know the scientific names to all of them, but as a teacher with two special education degrees, I have worked with people like that before. But I have also worked with enough people like that before to look at that picture and go, mm, you don't have the other physical symptoms that go with having this genetic defect. Okay, what sells tickets? So at this point, we start, you know, with this whole circus mindset, it's about coming to see what is freakish, what is weird, what is strange, what is bizarre, and the more bizarre or strange it is, the more likely you will sell tickets. But wrapped up in this dynamic is the fact that once people have seen the snake lady or the knife thrower or, you know, uh, Johnny Eck, the half boy, and the circus comes around again, it becomes this, this issue of, oh, yeah, well, we saw that last time. Oh, well, we, we, might, we might go to the circus, but we're not going to pay extra to go see that because, you know, I've seen all of that. This becomes part of the normal sort of highs and lows of entertainment appetites. The fact that the more bizarre it is, the harder it is to impress the audience the next time around. Okay. Ooh. All right, so there's Chang and Ang. Chang and Ang Bunker. And then of course we get Charles B. Tripp, the armless man, and Eli Bowen, the legless man. Okay, now that photograph's a little harder to dispute. That one's more, you know, more legit. And there are, um, there are subtle cues with both men that indicate that, yeah, they, these, these guys have, um, you know, 
they they actually are that way in real life and you can tell the the um the man without legs one of the ways you can tell that this is not a modified photograph look at the muscles on that man's arms like he's in a nice dress coat because he's he's mugging it for the camera but this guy has arm muscles if you do not have legs, and especially in that day and time, having a wheelchair, like there were wheelchairs, but they were not the um, accessible, more versatile conveyances that they are now. Like, what does he do? He's walking around on his arms and hands uh, if, if he really needs to get somewhere. Um, and then same thing with our man who has no arms. He's got some pretty powerful leg muscles, and I can bet you that he's pretty amazing flexible, too, because if you don't have arms, then your feet become your hands. Uh, I've, I've seen some interviews with some people like him before, and it is the weirdest thing to see, like, a, a, and, and the, the one spot that I'm thinking of was a 16-year-old boy with no, he was born without arms. Um, but he, he walks around in shorts and uh, sandals all the time because every once in a while he has to slip off one shoe and then he'll like pour himself a glass of milk from the gallon jug in the refrigerator. And, and you know, you're watching it and he's talking to the camera the whole time he's doing this and he's just, you know, fixing himself a snack and he's talking about, well, this is how I, I make sure that my feet are clean before I do this and blah, blah, blah. And it's... <laughs> so it's pretty, huh, what? How does he put a mask on? <laughs> Carefully. <laughs> um, so this isn't a recent uh, interview though, so I, I don't I don't know if that guy is still around. So, but anyway, so you're, you're getting sort of the the idea here that um, people start becoming more and more fascinated by the bizarre and unusual but there's this money-making angle to it and then there's also the fact that audiences become more and more difficult to please and then there's also and this was a real thing in like the 19 the the 19 teens and the 1920s there was this craze for flagpole sitting like there was this you know uh ongoing competition you might call it a challenge you know how people like to do like TikTok or instagram challenges it is not something that is new specifically to instagram or TikTok. it started way before then 1920s and a little bit before that um it was this ongoing challenge to see who could sit for the longest period of time on top of a flagpole why? I have no idea, but it was all the craze back in the day. Yes. Sounds like one of those things two guys just thought up in like a bar. Of like, yeah. Hey, you can't sit on top of that flagpole for 15 minutes. All right, how much money? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. It, it's, it's exactly that kind of thing. It's like, who thinks this up? It was, probably was somebody who had thrown back one too many beers. And, um, and so, but th this is... And you would also get people who would do this as a way to announce that the circus was in town. You'd get, you know, the trapeze artist or the tightrope walker to string um, a tightrope across, uh, say, uh, Broadway in New York City. And everybody would come out to watch 
this person walked the tightrope across a busy city street and then it's you want to see more come to the circus come see us and so the you start to see the beginnings of um like that kind of gimmick advertising uh, where they draw you in and it's like oh and then if you want to see more you gotta pay if you want to see more you gotta click here so it, it doesn't start with the internet age this has been going on for quite some time um couple of famous names out of this time that had genuine skill houdini is just almost like he, he's beyond legendary at this point um uh, the famous escape artist, um, there have been books written about this guy. If you don't know who the great Houdini is, you should look him up. He's pretty amazing. Interestingly enough, um, he died in uh, the prime of his life from appendicitis, but it happened in a really weird way. So he had this running, apart from being a really great escape artist, he had... A running thing going with his shows where he told people he would tell the audience uh, that if anybody could come up and punch him in the gut and make him you know like a double over what how they would get like you know five dollars or something and of course Houdini was a master of controlling his mind and also his body. And so he had a way of getting himself into the right mindset where it wasn't just that he tightened up his abs, but he, he would go into a certain mental space and, you know, get very focused and calm. And then it was a process of how he would just really harden his gut so that when somebody would come up and punch him, well, they, they would go away just squalling because it would be like hitting a brick wall. Well, one day after one of his shows, a man came up to him and is like, you, you Houdini, and, you know, we, we get, you know, money, such and another, if we do this to you, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he didn't expect it to happen right then and what the guy did. And he was a big bruiser of a guy. He just wailed into just one punch and just crumpled him to the ground, but it ruptured his appendix. And by the time they got him to the hospital, the poison had spread through his entire system and he died. The Flying Wallendas are royalty in the world of tightrope walkers. I believe the most recent um, uh, notable performance of the Flying Wallendas happened actually just a few years ago. Like we're talking five generations, like it's the family business of um, doing these crazy, impressive stunts on tight ropes. Did I see a hand back there? Yes, no? I can never be sure. Okay, so criminal sensations. Then you get to the other part of the freak show and circuses um, where we're not only paying money to, you know, ogle other people's deformities or their amazing, genuine amazing skills, like Houdini and the Wallandas. But then people start following these criminal sensations in the newspaper. So we have um, Amelia Elizabeth Dyer here. Um, uh, you talk about infanticide, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm looking down this, oh, like her jaws on the floor. Um, but, uh, uh, I don't know, how would you 
describe a, a, a baby farm in this context. I mean, <laughs> like, I, I don't even, I don't even know what to say about this, but. A repository for probably the, the unwanted. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but this is, you know, and, and I know there's like the ongoing debate about abortion, about how things like that were handled before the advent of modern medicine, which again is a very icky subject. Do not Google it unless you're planning to go into nursing or something, and even then, tread carefully. Um, but, uh, but this is like children who have already been born and are unwanted. And so she was basically helping people get rid of the evidence. Okay? Sick. Very sick. But this is where, you, you know how, um, oh, let's see, none of y'all would remember Columbine. Y'all remember the, the Sandy Hook shooting? Like, I'm sure you've heard about the Columbine shooting. Sandy Hook shooting, um, and then we've had other shootings in America over the uh, previous years. And one of the things that the media has, has done, especially since the Columbine shooting of the late 90s, is they keep the perpetrator's name out of the media because that is one of the things that motivates them to perpetuate these horrific acts is that they want to go down in history like Bonnie and Clyde, like, you know, pick horrible, wicked, nefarious person. Like, they, they want to be remembered in history as this great sensation. It started here. I, I don't know that this woman in particular was motivated by being famous to do these horrendous things, but you know, with the quick turnaround in news being printed in newspapers, then what that meant is that people are not just following, oh, this is what the king's doing, this is what the president's doing, this is what parliament or congress is voting on, but it's like, you know, what what's you know, what's the latest on Jack the Ripper? You know, well, what's the latest on Amelia Dyer? Have they found her yet? Have they, you know, the great outlaws, Jesse James and Billy the Kid and, you know, and, and so people start following those stories as much or more so than the things happening in governments or in seats of world power that are, you know, changing everyday life. So we, we get a society that is more and more concerned with these serial killers or with these um, chronic criminals and uh, and then like here uh, you know finding out whether or not you know these outlaws wanted dead or alive um, so this is they used to do this a lot for the newspapers they don't do this anymore. I mean, I know people don't really, you know, buy newspapers much anymore. Um, but uh, in order to prove that this outlaw had been brought to justice or that they had been killed in this great shootout with the police, they would line the bodies up and they would take pictures of them. And then that would be printed in the newspaper. And of course, that is what sold newspapers. So when we start talking about people like William Randolph Hearst, the great newspaper magnate of the late 1800s, early 1900s, he knew it was sensationalism that sold his newspapers. So he would send reporters out 
to ask questions of the neighbors and of the newspaper boy and the person who delivered coal or ice to the person's house to try to get the extra dirt on this person or this situation. And that set the tone for the kind of so-called journalism that we have now, where it's not so much about reporting the news, uh, rather it's more about who's dishing on the dirt. Um, and then there becomes this almost death culture with, you know, because society became so obsessed with death, so obsessed with the weird and the bizarre, that there uh, became this whole business surrounding death. So if you're familiar with the, uh, the book, the story of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens, um, then you know that there is one point in Oliver Twist's um, is, this is a young boy and his adventure in, on his way to find his forever family, as we would say now. Um, he is basically kicked out of the poor house, this orphanage where he is with all these boys, and he is essentially sold to an undertaker to be a professional mourner uh, for children's funerals, which means that when there was a funeral, and especially if, um, if the family had any amount of wealth, they could pay for the fancy hearse and for professional mourners, which that's what these guys are here on the right, um, and they would walk before the hearse um, as part of that, those extended trappings of death. And, um, and so depending on who died, that would decide which or how many professional mourners would be in the entourage. And then, of course, that hearse there on the far left is, you know, far from being practical, it's more of a work of art. I mean, it's very elaborate. Um, but th this is where we start to get things worked into the details of, of everyday life where it's like, okay, when people die, it's sad, and we mourn them, and, and, and there, there's always that lingering bruise in our souls because we miss them, but... This is almost escalating it to a, a perverse sort of art form. Um, and on the one hand, it's fascinating, but on the other hand, there should be a part of your brain that's going, huh? Why, why spend all of this time, all of this focus, and especially if the person is redeemed in Christ, like this is where a Mr. Swale's rant and Dracula about the headstones is like, well, you know, half of these graves are empty anyway. And, you know, the, all these stones say sacred to the memory of, you know, these people, a lot of these, these were not good people. What are they going to do? Present their headstones on the day of judgment as proof that they were good so that God will let them into heaven? Like what, what is this? And that's part of Mr. Swale's rant is he's basically ranting against this sort of thing as if, all of these extra trappings were somehow supposed to, um, you know, improve the reputation of the deceased person. And, and of course, Mina points out at one point, she's like, well, maybe it's for the bereaved family, for the people who miss them. And he's, and that's when he points out the story of George Cannon. And he's like, uh, you read that headstone, let me tell you the real story here. So, uh, so I think that uh, Bram Stoker was actually um, exposing some of this hypocrisy at certain moments in his own book. 
Okay, death mask, I told you it was a thing. This is what people did um, uh, for a living, uh, some people. Um, yeah. Famous death mask. I mentioned these earlier. We have, from left to right, Beethoven, Lincoln, and Benjamin Franklin. So, in the days before photography, this is, and this is one of those weird things, it's like, why do people do this back then? That's really creepy. But, for a 21st century, you know, researcher, for someone who is trying to reconstruct things, like, it's the, the, uh, death masks and also the lockets of hair that people used to snip and they would keep like a, 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 a swirl of so-and-so's hair in the locket by their chest or in the back of their watch case. Those have actually helped solve certain medical riddles uh, that we have had over the years. One of them being uh, uh, regarding Beethoven. Beethoven was a famous composer. Um, if you don't know him by name, you probably know the classic dun 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 Like that's Beethoven's fifth. It's been used in movies, it's been used in television shows and cartoons. Um, it's a it's a very well written symphony. Most of the music he wrote during the latter years of his life, he wrote when he was stone deaf. He could not hear sound, and yet he writes his you know I guess it's Beethoven's ninth. It actually, that is the da-da-da-da that everybody knows. Anyway. Uh, I think it's his fifth. Oh, is it his fifth? Okay. So, like I said, sometimes pulling things off the top of my head doesn't work so well. But anyway, he went completely deaf and kept writing this remarkable music, but, there, but the um, onset of deafness was very sudden. And so there was this question in the medical community. It's like, well, why... Did Beethoven lose his hearing so suddenly? And then what allowed him to continue writing this music? Well, using the death mask and especially the lock of hair, because this is another part of the death trappings of the 18 and late 1700s, is that they, a body would lie in state where people could come and pay their last respects. And people would come with their knives and their sewing scissors, and they would snip off pieces of the person's hair to keep so that they could say, I have a piece of Beethoven. And somebody had done this and had kept it in a locket, and that locket had been passed down through the family. And then uh, somebody was able to trace this down and get permission to test a couple of the fibers of hairs um, that's, uh, that was in the locket. And uh, when they did, they not only conclusively determined from DNA, because we know where Beethoven's buried, they, they had the body exhumed, that it was his DNA, but there were high, high, high levels of lead and mercury in his hair, which meant that he was getting it in his diet somehow on a, a regular basis. So they figured out it was because of the mercury lining of the hats that was used to treat men's hats at the time. This is why the Mad Hatter in Alice in Wonderland is mad because most hatters in handling mercury for their hats went crazy at some point because of the mercury going to their brain. And he had high concentrations of lead because once he started becoming financially stable, he splurged on a really nice set of lead glazed dining ware 
plates and cups that had this beautiful color, but it had lead in it, which meant that every time he ate off of one of those plates or drank from one of his cups, he was putting lead in his system. Cameron, you've been very patient. Yes, sir. Do you think that one of the reasons he did keep writing music was even though he couldn't hear it, he could possibly feel it? Exactly. That is why the Beethoven's fifth bum 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 like if you listen to that entire piece of music like the bass is ramped way up i mean it's classical music so it's not like you know it's not like subwoofers like shaking the cars as you can drive them down the road but for a piece of classical music it's like the bass is ramped way up and that was how he could you know, match the notes and everything. It's like he would write things down and then he would get people to perform it, tweak the music. And yes, it, it had every bit to do with vibrations and the fact that the man apparently could keep track of all of this music in his head and remember what they sounded like, even though he could not, no longer physically hear what the notes sounded like. In fact, there's um, one really great story about him. He, uh, there was a debut performance of some music that he had written, and he had he was sitting front row, um, middle seat, with the sheet music in front of him because he couldn't hear the orchestra. Um, and, and because of the way the stage was placed, he wasn't getting the vibrations either. So what he did was he had the music in front of him, and the conductor raises his baton and does the downstroke. And at that point, Beethoven went down and started following along with his music. But he was counting to a different tempo than what the conductor had chosen. The conductor was a little bit faster. It was sort of like one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Whereas Beethoven was thinking one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one. And so they got to the end of the piece. There's this roar of approval from the audience, a standing ovation, thunderous applause. Beethoven didn't notice. He didn't see it. He didn't fear the vibrations. He's still going through the last two and a half sheets of music. And it wasn't until he got to the last page and looked up that he realized that everyone, including the conductor and the orchestra, is giving him what at that point was several minutes standing ovation. And then he realized that everyone was applauding him. He couldn't hear it. He couldn't feel it. Lead and mercury, bad combination. It's amazing that the guy didn't go crazy. He cut the legs off of his piano, so it was set on the floor. I forgot about that, yes. He could feel the vibrations, and he was so Absolutely. I've forgotten about him cutting the legs off the piano. But if you've ever known deaf people, um, you know that vibrations play a huge part in their awareness of their surroundings. <clears throat> yeah, a brilliant man. All right, Memento Mori. Okay, so Memento Mori is a Latin phrase that re says, remember you will die. So out of this death culture, and I'm sorry that this is sort of a, a not sort of, it's a darkish kind of topic today, but <sighs> you, you get this sort of contrast where Dracula starts in absolute darkness and works its way out to absolute light. And then somehow as a culture, we 
had what was light and have worked our way into a pretty dark corner and have fooled ourselves into thinking that a death culture that you know vampires and werewolves are are fuzzy wuzzy romance stories and you know all the rest um but the the thing that about this is that it has put its hooks into so many different aspects of life uh that like you think oh those people in the 1800s they were so weird no if you pay attention you will see the exact same stuff plaguing our own day and age it's just digitized most of it um it's a selection on netflix with an ma rating that your parents probably have the um you know restrictions set on it's you know buried at the back of this video game or this social media construct whatever it's there it's and it you know and while man's proclivity for the dark and twisted has been there from the beginning since basically the first murder Cain and Abel um once we get to the age of photography it, it starts to really take on a life of its own now Memento Mori jewelry dates back to the 1500s, uh, actually, and originally it was just supposed to be a reminder of, you know, remember at some point you will die, use your hours well, use your days well. But then we get to the days of Queen Victoria, and, and what I'm going to mention here is really, maybe it would have happened without her help but it is sort of her fault we have memento mori photography so you have two photos here what's wrong with these two photos like what's what's off here it looks like the woman and the boy are dead yes the woman in the left picture is dead in the picture on the right they are both dead what? Oh. Oh. Geez. Yeah. You you have to look at a couple of different things, but there is this weird trend in the 1800s regarding death photography. And this is where we have Queen Victoria to thank for this. After losing Albert, Prince Albert, she was distraught. She never got over his death. We've talked about her um rituals that came out of this she wore the black of mourning for the rest of her life she always had albert's clothes laid out the night before or the morning of i forget which uh to as though he was going to go into the day with her um but losing him uh did something with the, the way she saw the world and as time went on and it became clear that other family members were sick and not long for this world whenever um, loved ones or good friends passed on she would send a photographer out to photograph that person before they were buried and she apparently had a room in one of the castles that people were not allowed to enter. I think only like a couple of people and it was like a couple of her children 
were allowed to see inside this room. And this is where she kept her memento mori photography, the photos of all these loved ones that she had died. So basically, if the photo was not taken of the person during life, she would have a photo taken of them in their death, and then she would keep the photo because, especially if you're thinking 1850s, 1860s, it was rare that anybody had ever had their photo taken, and if you did, it was probably because you or somebody had a lot of money because it was not readily available for everyone. And then this sort of catches on. The word gets out that the queen is having these death photographs made of uh, friends and family, and so other people are saying, oh, well, we never got a photograph of grandma either and she passed away so everybody here's the hat everybody put money in we're we're going to uh, hire a photographer to come and take a picture of you know of grandma before we bury her and this became like a trend it's a very grotesque trend it's very maudlin it's very um over emotional but this is something that you know, I'm, I'm not going to dwell on this, but you talk about creepy. Like, this is, like, it's creepy stuff. So why? Why talk about all of this bizarre, death-centric weirdness? I've mentioned several things along the way, but here's the bottom line. And this is where a little bit of note-taking on your pink sheet will, uh, will go down well. Um... It's because that in the Victorian era that we see our modern or uh, the modern origins of our obsession with death and death rituals, fleeting celebrity, celebrity built on shock value. Okay, so I, I what's coming to mind here is uh, several years ago uh, it, uh, the Emmy Awards. Um, Lady Gaga showed up to the awards ceremony in a dress made out of raw meat. And another year, she showed up in a gigantic egg, and at a certain point in the festivities, she, quote, hatched from the egg wearing a yolk dress. Shock value. It's about what gets people talking. It's about what gets people just stopping whatever they're doing and just sort of staring in awe at whatever is going on. Um, this is where we become obsessed with sensationalism, idolizing criminals. Y'all, I, I knew some kids in public school that, um, you know, you asked them who their favorite person in history was and, and the names they would give you are like, oh, oh, you need, you, mm, I've got my eye on you. Um, or, and they would just be super obsessed with this person or this crime spree or whatever. And, you know, granted, there are names uh, and, and, and the list of criminals out there that we have to stop and acknowledge that, you know, Dahmer or Bundy or Charles Manson, that they did what they did. But it's another thing to where all you want to do is like read up on these guys or watch movies about these people. That trips over into the unhealthy. Yes. There was a trend, I think, on TikTok not too long ago, where uh, people, especially teenage girls, they would show their favorite old photos of mass killers and over a love song. Yeah. Okay, that's that's this. Okay, that's sick. 
That is beyond sick. Uh, and, and that's what I'm talking about here. Like, I know this is not a very comfortable discussion. Like, it, it starts off like, oh, we're hanging an elephant. And then it's like you can just see the, the, the slow erosion down to, like, the really sick stuff. But the, what the, what's really harrowing about this is that, number one, we got to that point as a culture a long time ago. Like, before you were born, before I was born, before my parents were born, before their parents were born. We got to this point a long time ago, and the other really ugly part about this is that it has not left us. It is still there, and it has just found fresh ways to put its hooks into audiences. Did I see another hand back here? I think I did. Yes, no. Okay. Um, hmm. And, of course, where that leaves us is the classic saying that what one generation tolerates, the next embraces to excess. So, anyway, okay, so we're, we're going to, um, <laughs> we're gonna stop share on that one, and I'm just going to walk away from that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm glad this class is in the middle of the day. And, and I will say this, that I know that between Dracula and then these couple of lessons on Victorianism um, that we've had to look some really ugly stuff in the face. As far as like the dark stuff in this class, the worst of it is now behind us. So for, for those of you who have just been like super uncomfortable with, with all of this death talk and, and Dracula and everything, yeah, it's, it's okay. We're, we're starting to, to pressurize our up periscope. We're coming up for air here. And in terms of Dracula, I will say, um, if you've gotten through Chapter 8, you're on the verge of meeting Dr. Van Helsing. And Dr. Van Helsing is, in a lot of ways, like he's the angel of light stepping into this story. And, and at, at first, he just seems like a bumbling old man. But over the course of the story, it, it's like it starts with him, and then that's where the light starts to spread out. And even though evil does try to counterattack it, it, it still, it, it's like it's that pinprick of light that starts to grow through the entire story. Or put another way, I, I realized here in the last um, week or so as I was reading through, I was trying to just wrap my mind around why I like Dr. Van Helsing so much other than the obvious fact that he is the light coming into a dark situation. In Narnian terms, he's the puddle glum of the story. He's the curmudgeonly soul that you think is just there for comic relief. And then there's that moment where he steps on the witch's fire and says his piece and says, look, even if we are defeated in this moment, we are still victorious and you have not won. And it's just, he's just such a beautiful character. And um, so, anyway, just be looking for Dr. Van Helsing if you haven't run across him yet. Yes? Um, you said this is kind of dark stuff is behind us. Is that until we get to medicine? Well, medicine, and then medicine has its own, like, quirky side to it. But um, as far as, what I mean by that is, as far as talking about, like, uh, psychos and, and serial killers and death photography and, and that sort of thing. 
that is like I've said my piece on this that's now part of the lexicon of how to filter whatever else we see and then the medicine is you know uncomfortable in other ways but um, but that's yes yes Leah Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, Lamentations, there's nothing new under the sun. It just reinvents in the new mode of presentation, whatever that is. So it's, it's like, you know, just like dirty pictures, pornography. This is not new to the 21st century. It's not new to the age of photography. There are mosaics in Vesuvius that qualify as pornography. And, but it's just moved from mosaics to drawings to paintings to photographs to video games to, you know, online nastiness of all sorts. It's human nature is what it is. The sin is always there. We have not invented new ways. We have not invented new sins. We have just invented new ways to indulge in sin. That takes care of it for this time. A lot of murky conversation, uh, a lot of staring into the dark side of life. But as I said, uh, the, the darkest part is behind us, uh, with the exception of our discussion, really, of the Holocaust next semester. Uh, so thanks so much, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>